Good morning, church family. Always a, a privilege uh, to get to uh, share a message from the Word with you guys. And um, this morning, I, I want to look at a, a text in, in Luke 7, a, a text that I've read many times and never preached over. Uh, but I, like you, uh, have been asked many times what I would do if I wasn't doing what I am doing. Uh, I suspect you've probably been asked the same question. But for me, uh, if I could do anything, it would be in the field of something called behavioral economics. Uh, I read a book uh, called Misbehaving a number of years ago, and it, it just rocked my world. It, it blows my mind why we do the things we do as humans. We, we make very little sense, you and I, and it just fascinates me why people do the things they do. And one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is that we are, for most part, Walking, talking, contradictions. I work with young people, but I don't think this is exclusive to young people. But we can at the same time know that we spend a tremendous amount of time and energy crafting an image of what we want people to see about us. We do it online. We do it in our homes, cleaning every nook and cranny before someone comes over. And then we see other people online and we assume that's their real life. If only my kids could get along as well as theirs do. If, if only my marriage was as perfect as theirs. If only I kept my house as clean all the time like they do. We do it in our, our workplaces. There's a, a word for it. It's called imposter syndrome. We spend a, a lot of time in our own heads convincing ourselves that we are ill-equipped for the task at hand, regardless of what it is, job, marriage, parenting. And yet right alongside that self-deprecating self-hatred, we have this little line of narcissism that says everyone else is thinking that about you too. That we are the garbage that the world revolves around that we are both at the same time worthless and yet all anybody ever thinks about. But I want to look this morning at a story in Luke where he embodies one that may be the most damaging. We all know that we are a deeply complex people, crafted through our parents and our background, the geography you were raised in, the generation that you came up in, a mixture of all sorts of things, good and bad, and yet we think we can have people figured out in a matter of seconds based on maybe the color of their skin or the clothing that they wear or the way that they speak. We think we know all about everybody but I am complex and would be so difficult to understand. We're going to look at a Pharisee today that thinks he's got Jesus figured out. Now, I want to say, before we even get to the text, I actually think this Pharisee is actually in good faith when he invites Jesus to his house. We have really no reason to believe from the text that this Pharisee was trying to catch Jesus in some sort of snafu, some sort of gotcha moment so he can expose Jesus for who he really is. It seems to be an open-minded Pharisee. In fact, 
I would argue we have misrepresented Pharisees. So much so that we've made them out to be evil monsters hell-bent on destroying the, the Messiah, Jesus. And the danger in that is we all know we're not horrible monsters hell-bent on destroying the, the Messiah, Jesus. And so we could never be like them. But I would also argue that in most Scripture, we are the Pharisee. Today is no exception. The Pharisees were wrong about what Jesus was. They were wrong about how God chose or would like them to live. The Pharisees were wrong about a, a faith built on, or a, a religion based on works instead of faith manifesting itself out in works. But they were deeply devoted to Yahweh, deeply devoted to this God and deeply nervous about what they thought was a new guy on the scene, Jesus. But if we craft them out to be these uh, horrible people, and you know you're not a horrible person, you'll never see yourself in the Pharisees, and I think what you'll find is you'll become uh, accidental Pharisees. This Pharisee seems to be inviting Jesus over in good faith, seems to be uh, actually interested in finding out if Jesus is who he says he was, though he didn't get Jesus. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. All four Gospels contain a story similar to this. Matthew and Mark are very similar stories. They are late in the ministry of Jesus, and they are both, uh, um, uh, Jesus says, that this ointment and this uh, anointing was done in preparation for his burial. John's gospel names the person, but names that it's Mary Magdalene, and it's done after uh, he resurrected Lazarus as a gift of thanksgiving he was anointed. This seems to be a completely different story from either of those two. Sometimes we get it confused and we think they're all the same story, certainly the Matthew, Mark, and Luke version, but Luke seems to be a different one. This is early in Jesus' ministry. There is no evidence that Jesus connects this to his burial, and Jesus has not even begun to foretell his death and resurrection. The other big difference, in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel, she is described as a harlot. In this one, she's just simply described as a sinner. I think it's important because we started in verse 36, but if you go up to 34, you'll see this was a criticism of Jesus, that he kept finding himself in the company of sinners, kept finding himself around those he shouldn't be spending time with. It's actually going to be the root of the wrong assumption that this Pharisee has about Jesus. But here they are eating dinner. You and I likely eat dinner pretty privately. Even when we have guests, the idea of someone coming in the front door unannounced and uninvited to begin washing the feet of, uh, of one of your guests would have been unusual, but for them, it would have been pretty normal. It would have looked less like the dinner that you and I had last night and more like 
red carpet or the exit stage of a Broadway musical where they want to see their favorite actors exiting. People would crowd around these uh, uh, religious leaders' homes to see who they had invited in from outside of town. Words traveled fast for a long time. And it seems as though this person, this lady, heard that Jesus was going to be there. And so she comes with a gift of thanksgiving, not for the raising of Lazarus, but because of the impact that his message has had on her. Let's continue. She comes in holding an alabaster jar of ointment, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. If you've seen pictures of Jesus' feet being washed or the uh, anointing stories, you have him sitting in a chair like we sit in with this little lady, you know, curled up underneath the table washing his feet. That wouldn't have been anything like it. And it would be confusing for her to be behind him. But he would be laying on his side or maybe even on his stomach on his left arm with his feet back behind him eating. And a lady comes in Changed, Jesus is going to say, she was changed before this moment by the message of Jesus, but likely having never seen him in person. Certainly not with this proximity. And she doesn't even get the jar open before she begins to weep. Now, I don't want you to think about that time you watched a movie and the sad thing happened and, and, and your, your, your eyes welled up. Right, or a, a tear fell down. No, we're talking about the nasty stuff, right? We're talking about the uncontrollable sobbing. I suspect everyone in this room has done before, and if you haven't, I'm sorry, because that kind of sobbing comes from a deep, deep love. I hope you've loved something enough to cry like that. And she is so uncontrollably sobbing, carrying nothing but the ointment in her hand, probably not someone of means when you're described as a woman of the city who was a sinner. And finds herself in a compromising position, came here to anoint his feet, and now they're soaked in her tears. The only thing she has at her disposal, let down her hair. Now, you and I may go, ew, gross. But for them, this would have been incredibly offensive. Uninvited guests, okay. You want to come in here and you want to you see my guest? Okay, that's, that's one thing. Now you're going to start crying. Things are getting uncomfortable. Now you're going to let your hair out? If you have kids, you've all had the speech. When they get here, you better be on your best behavior. Right, as hosts, we are deeply concerned with the experience of our guests, which another one of those contradictions, guys. No, nobody has ever been on their way as a guest and thought to themselves, if their kids are not on their best behavior, I'm not going back. Right, if I get in there and I find out that they have not been slaving over this house all day, I'm not going back one more time. But that's still the way. As, as hosts, we get in that mode, right? We go, if, if you do anything to embarrass me. Guys, this is an embarrassment far worse than any tantrum your kid has thrown when you've had friends over. 
A sinner from the street comes in, starts crying all over his feet. Now she's got her hair out, sopping it up. Incredibly offensive. Which leads him to a pretty dangerous place. He starts assuming. And you all know what happens when you assume, right? It makes an astronomical fool out of you. I don't know what it does for me, but it definitely makes a fool out of you, right? We, he starts assuming and he goes, well, if he just knew, let's, let's look at the Pharisee. She continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Luke loves the inner monologue. Another uh, uh, foretelling that Jesus is who he said he was, he reads minds, said to himself, If this man, Jesus, were really a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. You see, he goes, man, I I, kind of thought he was the guy, but if he was, there's no way he would let this lady touch him. We've got a bad habit as people. Somehow, as we get further from the date where you became a Christian, right? I'm not saying as you mature in your faith because I'm going I'm to say we don't mature in our faith. When, when you get further from that date, we have a really bad habit of getting narrower and narrower about who it is that's acceptable to Jesus. And you know what's really impressive about this? We always find a way to put ourselves between those lines. We always find a way to figure out how we get in and how more and more people get left out. You can never be a Christian if you vote this way. You can never be a Christian if you think this way. You You can never be a Christian if you act like that. I hope none of us have said it consciously, but we've all thought it. They say they're a Christian. But did you know? If you do it long enough, it's going to be a party of one by the end. It's just you. And anybody who doesn't look like you is left out. And, And again, surely not consciously, right? But in our heads, if everybody would just think and act a little bit more like me, things would be better. So surely, if he really knew what kind of person was touching him, boy. And this comes from a misunderstanding of cleanliness. At least a post-Jesus understanding of cleanliness. Right, that if an unclean person touches you, you are now unclean. If an unclean person sits in a seat that you then sit in, you are now unclean. But there's this cool story in Ezekiel. I preached on a year and a half. I know you've been thinking about it ever since then. Uh, But there was a leaky temple. They didn't have running water, but somehow the the temple's leaking. Ezekiel, a really forward thinker. And it starts as a a drip to a trickle to a flow, and it, it goes from this little puddle and then starts to snake its way through the desert as a little river, and everything this river touches just starts to sprout life. Oases in the middle of the desert. 
And it's this picture of a turning of the tide that no longer will these unclean, ceremonially unclean things make you unclean, but now the one clean thing, when you are touched, cleanses you. He is so disturbed by the way that Jesus is allowing his feet to be cleansed that he misses what's really happening. So then Jesus asked him a question. Now, it would have been pretty common to ask uh, uh, your guest or the guest to ask the host a riddle. Maybe have a little battle of wits at dinner. But this is a bad riddle. Let's, let's look at it. And the Pharisee had seen it. He said to him, says, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus spoke up and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. Careful what you wish for. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A year and a half, almost two years wages and a month and a half. Not an insurmountable, but a big, but a big sum. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered. I can only assume Simon thought like you did. Teacher asked a really easy question. You go, it can't be that easy. Simon answers, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one whom little is forgiven loves little. Jesus flips the script here. Jesus could have said, hey, bite your tongue, Simon. It's fine what she's doing. But instead, he goes from the entire end of the spectrum where Simon was. This is the worst dinner party. This person has ruined this evening. I'm embarrassed as a host. I have been embarrassed by this woman and her behavior. All the way to the other side where Jesus goes, no, no, no. She's the example. You see the title probably in your Bible? A Sinful Woman Forgiven? It's two titles. One is the way that Simon saw her. The other is the way that Jesus saw her. Jesus says, not only is she in, she is the model of love. And then he plays on Simon's misunderstanding of grace. I hope you know Jesus is not convinced that, that Simon needs less forgiveness than the woman. 
We've read too much of Jesus to think of that. He's playing upon the arrogance of the Pharisee. There is not a person in this room, whether you've been saved for 60 years or four days, there is not a person in this room that needs more forgiveness than someone else. There just isn't. Scripture's clear. But the one who recognizes the amount that they've been forgiven will evidence it not in their ability to hold a theological debate on Twitter, not in their ability to make somebody feel bad, and it's not in their church attendance. This is the ability to recognize if you recognize how much love you've been given, how well do you love people? Told you this before, don't evaluate it on how well you love your kids. Don't evaluate it on how well you love your wife. Those are, those are easy things. Evaluate it on how much you love the person who has the least in common with you. How well do you love the biggest jerk you've ever met? How well do you love the person who votes on the other side of the party? How well do you love the person who disagrees with you on everything, even your faith? He says it's a one-for-one one correlation. Those who recognize they've been forgiven much will love much, and those who don't won't. It's a scary prospect for a tradition of people risen out of a God who is love that are wholly not known for our love. Now, I do think it's important to note, Simon is the one who owes 50 denarii, right? I hope you saw that. Both get forgiven their debts, right? This is another one of those opportunities we can really lump on Simon and go, you big idiot, ah, you They both got forgiven. One got reprimanded. One was reminded where he had not loved well, but Simon's piety and religion is not a exclusive to Christianity. He just needs to re-aim. He says, you're both forgiven, but if you don't recognize the gravity, you're going to find people really hard to love because people are really hard to love. Those walking, walking contradictions, we, we're fine with them in our own head. It really bothers us when other people do it. It's troubling for me to watch other Christians be contradictions. I can explain it away because I'm pretty gracious with me. He says, no, the way that you love people, John would say through Jesus, new commandment I give you, love one another's, by this, they'll know that you're my disciples. It's almost as if there's not another metric given in Scripture. As badly as we would like another metric that's easier. He says, Simon, this person that you think ruined the party is the perfect host. 
You didn't seem to care about my presence at all. You've become so wholly unaffected by my presence that you didn't even make a big deal about it. Now, Jesus didn't say that, but, but say this, but, but maybe some of us have become so wholly unaffected by his presence, we didn't make a big deal of this at all. Well, it's just the thing we do after the other thing we did before where we got to hang out with our friends and talk about a Bible study. I like the songs or don't. Some of us have become wholly unaffected by who Jesus is, that we walk in this room and are not affected by worshiping corporately with hundreds of other believers lifting up the name of Jesus. She didn't follow any of the social conventions. She didn't stand up when she was supposed to stand up. She didn't sit down when she was supposed to sit down. She was uh, not quiet when she was supposed to be quiet or loud when she was supposed to be loud, but here she is the example. He does not say, Simon, you didn't make the cut. But he does say, Simon, you've got some learning to do. It's not from religious scholars. It's not from the elite. You've got to learn from this forgiven woman. Two titles, one that Simon sees, one that Jesus sees. This woman who's been forgiven. So here she is acting it out. It's the only way she knows how. Sobbing on his feet, sopping it up with her hair and then pouring ointment while she kisses. He's going to go on to Tell her her sins are forgiven. You go, well, what did he do that for? Didn't he, he already said her sins were forgiven and she doesn't need a re-upping, right? He, I think he does it for everyone else in the room because it's shocking to everybody else in the room. If you have not yet been shocked by the forgiveness of Jesus, I'm worried about you. If you can evaluate your life and the fact that Jesus has forgiven you for all sins, past, present, and future, and not be shocked, I'm worried about you. But once we get to that place, I've got a challenge for you. Try to love so well this week that somebody challenges you and goes, you sure you want to love that person like that? Jesus was constantly being criticized for how much he loved the people that weren't supposed to be loved by him. I very rarely get that criticism. Shamefully. But this week, you're going to have the opportunity to because people make it uh, a very present opportunity. Love somebody this week that's so shocking to the people around you. It's like, are you, are you sure you want to be seen with them? You sure you're going to get lunch with who? What, it, what will people think? 
What will they say if someone sees you there with, with them? And you can say, make sure you tell them it's Jesus, not you. But you can say, I, I've been forgiven much, so I don't have a choice but to love much. Now here's your warning. That's a whole lot easier said than done. But I can promise you it'll be worth it. Let's pray. God, you're so good. And you're for our good. We're so grateful for that truth. Forgive us when we take it for granted. Forgive us when we forget how loving you are. God, I pray that this morning you would ignite something in the hearts of us, me, everyone in this room, Lord. Ignite something that would lead to a movement that we couldn't take credit for, God. Do, do something so big in the lives and through the lives of these people that we could not take credit for it if we wanted to. That our only response would be, God did that. And it's your name I pray. Amen.